selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Speak, let's kind of pull on that dope thread a little bit because you get onto the shape. You survive the academy, obviously. So yes, yes. you graduate, um, you get out, you start working. As you're working, we want to talk about now what leads you into doing drug interdiction. So obviously when you start off, you're with a field training officer, you go through your training phase, then you get out on your own. What kind of things were you doing initially when you were out on your own? How does uh, North Carolina do it? Uh, you, I mean, you train for a while, then you're out. And uh, standard like what, traffic enforcement, work accidents? Uh, yes. Pretty much, is that what you were doing? Change tires, go get gasoline. <laughs> Murph, I warned you, Murph. Don't, don't go there. One of these days, we're going to be driving. There's going to be Murph on the side of the road. You want, hey, can you help me? I go, help me, help no. Me. <laughs> hey, Steve and I have had many of these uh, constant back and forth on this oh, exact yeah. thing. But, uh, but yeah, so... So when I graduated the academy, it was 20 weeks, uh, reported to my first duty station and did have a field training officer. I actually Where was had that two. at? It was in uh, Asheboro, North Carolina, Randolph County, which is on the south side of Greensboro. It was about an hour and 15 minutes uh, from where I grew up, and uh, but it was still within the same troop, which was, you know, uh, most state agencies have that similar structure where you have a troop and then you have districts within that troop. So that was my first duty station, and I had a primary and a secondary training officer and um, went through, I'm thinking it was uh, at the time, maybe six or eight weeks field training. And my primary uh, field training officer, his name was Wayne Brumley. Uh, just a jewel of a man, wonderful training guy. And uh, my secondary, uh, his name was uh, Tony Miller, uh, who later he rose to the rank of uh, major within the organization. He was uh, a young guy uh, who was uh, been on about five or six years when I came on. So I had a good mixture of uh, you know youthfulness as well as very veteran experience. And uh, the shift I was on, it was similar type makeup. And so Going into the field training office, you know, having some of that law enforcement background, I had become pretty good at catching impaired drivers at the police department. And so it was a Wait natural. A All the impaired drivers were at the police department? <laughs> when I worked at the police department, Eventually. I should say, I apologize. <laughs> 
but uh, it was just something I thought, you know, this is where I want to go. And uh, so, and my training officer, he was one of the leading impaired driver uh, uh, troopers in the district. And uh, he really focused and was successful with that. And he taught me a lot. But, you know, in the beginning, doing the tr- uh, traditional trooper type uh, uh, efforts, that's what my goal was. I really enjoyed it. It's what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, there's some funny stories in there. But one in particular that my training officer shared at my retirement luncheon, and he would share with you today, was uh, this was just kind of an internal trooper agency thing. I don't know if you did this, uh, Morgan, or not. But uh, when you would encounter in the old days somebody whose licenses were suspended roadside or whatever, you would take their license there on the spot and you would put it over your driver's side window uh, along the uh, uh, headliner there. Just slide it in there or you'd keep it over your sun visor. And my training officer had tons of those. And it was just always something I remember uh, Roger Smith having. So it was one of those little symbolic visuals that I thought, I want that. So I kind of set out on a mission, you know, to see how many licenses I could collect roadside. And so I made a comment to my training officer at the time. And he said, uh, you know, they're more trouble than they're worth. You have to keep up with them. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. So he get, he handed me a handful before I got out of training and said, here you go. Maybe this will help you feel like a real trooper. <laughs> and so it was just one of those little symbolic things that I connected with. But uh, in that, uh, you know, he his nickname was Brutal Brumley. Uh, he was a former military guy, about six foot, six one, thin guy, used to, uh, was very physically fit, uh, marathon runner, still runs today, and he's uh, mid to late 70s. But uh, he uh, developed that nickname because of, you know, some roadside encounters, obviously, through the courts. And uh, I saw it in action during training. Uh, we stopped a gentleman for speeding one day uh, late evening. And the gentleman didn't initially want to cooperate. And this was when he had turned it over to me and he was just watching from a distance and, you know, trying to find my way through. This guy wasn't the most cooperative about the couple requests. So next thing I know, uh, my training officer commences to removing the gentleman from the car and not in how the gentleman wanted to cooperate. And this guy was twice our size. And uh, so I saw firsthand in action, you know, how he earned his nickname. Uh, but he was very fair. And uh, anyway, when we got the uh, gentleman uh, under under control and took him to jail, he had a long conversation with me about taking control. He said, you cannot let anybody else get the upper hand on you out here. It's because of survivability. So it was a valuable lesson taught at the time. But, you know, I've seen him encounter so many situations where he showed a lot of compassion uh, through accident investigations as well as roadside stops for different violations. And uh, so he was well-rounded and uh, gave me a good lesson. And uh, But at the time, interdiction was not even in the culture of the Highway Patrol. It wasn't even thought about. It was just traditional trooper work. And the county that I went to had eight miles of interstate. But where we worked was non-interstate. And so that leads me into once he cut me loose, uh, passed all my training, I started, you know, doing traditional trooper work. And at the time when I joined the patrol, I kind of have to go back here. There we, uh, the patrol, uh, the uh, troopers that have, you know, uh, uh, gotten killed in action, they uh, kind of came in clusters, two and three at a time. And just before I joined the patrol, we'd had three members that were uh, killed roadside, and two of those want interstate highway. And where I grew up, we didn't have interstate highway, so I didn't have any familiarity to it. 
And uh, so I was like, you know, I don't want nothing to do with that. I just want to be a traditional trooper. But I was very proactive. I was finding a lot of stuff roadside. And, uh, you know, when I would make an arrest for driving one paired, I took the time to go up and search the car. And if I found anything else, I was making charges. And so I kind of developed the desire to do that. And um, and then in our patrol office uh, one day, my secondary training officer, the gentleman I mentioned to you earlier who had been on less time, he had attended our first interdiction training course, which was taught internally. And I remember him talking about it. And for some reason, it just connected, you know, I connected with it, the stories he was telling, the lessons that they were uh, talking about. And uh, when our agency started the interdiction effort, it was in partnership with DEA. And uh, they had started the experiment on Interstate 95 down in Fayetteville. And uh, the troopers that were working it down there had had a lot of success. They were kind of the first generation interdiction troopers. This is, uh, you know, the mid and uh, late 80s. And so uh, a couple of gentlemen by the name of Chris Dew, who had our first canine, and Terry Isaacs, who was really the, uh, the one who was making a lot of seizures at the time, they taught that course. So anyway, he comes back to our district and uh, is talking some about it, and it just captured me. And he had a bulletin that they had given him in at school, and it was an epic bulletin. It was a teletype that would list you know, seizures from throughout the country of seizures that made the threshold. And uh, so I started reading it. And for whatever reason, it just connected with me. And uh, that, that's how I began, you know, pursuing the uh, interdiction efforts. Oh, I remember reading those teletypes, too. You know, th- those those were very interesting. You get the law enforcement officers killed summary and then the yes. teletypes. And um, but you, you mentioned something, too, I want to ask you about. Um, you said that they traditionally didn't work interstate. You know, uh, is that just because of like you're talking about the danger or was it because see, it's kind of the opposite. A lot of troops where I was at. We had a lot of two-lane. In fact, all of my stuff was two-lane, and you would have killed to be up on the interstate where you thought all the action was. Right. Um, why, did, why did they keep you away from the interstate, or why did you stay away from the interstate? Just because of part of the danger factor or something else? Well, I think it was a combination of reasons. Again, going back to where I said I grew up, non-interstate, uh, a lot of secondary roads. That's just what I was familiar with. And, uh, you know, those folks that had been like Roger Smith and a couple of his workmates, that's where they worked and built their reputation. And uh, so, you know, trying to follow that lead, I think that's why I did that. And my training officer, he worked some interstate, but he wasn't in the uh, interdiction area. He was just, you know, uh, regular trooper enforcement. Um, but that's the way he operated was secondary roads. Uh, you know, in that day, you were uh, heavy on looking for impaired drivers. Then, you know, looking for uh, the under the influence drivers, especially on Friday and Saturday nights on evening shift. Uh, it was a lot of priority placed on that. And so just trying to fall in line and follow their lead, I think, is why I did that. And, uh, you know, but what I quickly learned was what the interstate did bring you was if you uh, were low for the week as far as, you know, number of citations or activity that you had to turn in at the end of the week for the supervisor to see, you know, you could go out there and with high volume traffic, you could quickly pick up on some of your total numbers for the week. And uh, now, wait a minute. Did the North Carolina Highway Patrol have a quota? <laughs> no, we did not have a quota. But I will say they the, the supervisors did monitor your number of contacts per hour of preventive patrol. That's how it was worded. And you had better be in that district average of what everybody else had. So, uh you know, I had somebody ask me that one time. You guys have a quote? I said, "No, sir. I can ride as many as I want. How many would you like today?" You know. 
<laughs> a good response. Yeah. So uh, that you know that that was kind of my introduction, and uh, and then you know with my training officer, my sec- uh, secondary training officer introduced me to that. It just kind of took, and so I started uh, going out there and trying it, and uh, having little success. Really didn't know what I was doing, but it was just a process of learning from there. And um, you know, I was a, a very proactive trooper. I you know did a lot of high uh, production, got a unmarked car at a young age, uh, young in my career. And uh, anyway, the next time the next class came open internally, uh, my then district first sergeant asked me if I would be interested in going. I said, yeah. And I remember sitting through that class uh, with those troopers teaching it, and it just captivated me. That's, I mean, that's the simplest way I could, you know, as they were giving some of their case studies, talking about, you know, what their findings were and some of the follow-up results, I thought, that's what I really want to try. And so I came back and started trying to apply it. So you started doing this. So what was your first, uh, what was your first big seizure? What, what What's the one that crack the because you know you have to go we started it i was part of a four-person team four-man team at that time we started our interdiction unit and so when you start off you, you don't really like say know what you're doing you get a few things here and there we were working 54 which if you remember uh the operation pipeline report out of epic uh, highway 54 that came up out of texas and oklahoma and through kansas that was a major pipeline they were making lots of arrests so we started working that area you know we we were stopping everything in sight you know trying to look for stuff but you always kind of start off small what was that watershed event for you what was that thing that kind of cracked it open that once you get that first one it's like ah I got this yeah. figured out. Well, so this was in 1988. Again, <clears throat> it wasn't the culture of the highway patrol. It was just kind of getting started. And so there really wasn't a lot of information to pull from or, you know, a lot of guys saying, hey, let's go up and work this road and look for this. It was just kind of, a you know, a, an individual effort, so to speak. And at that same time, the one of the troopers I mentioned earlier on Interstate 95, Chris Dew, he had had our first canine on the patrol, but it was just a narcotic dog. It was a uh, beagle. And, uh, you know, some about that during the training, listening to him talk about, you know, the role the canine played that interested me. So when I came back to the district, not long after that, a uh, request came through patrol headquarters, troop headquarters, any troopers interested in having a canine, you know, submit your uh, interest. So I thought about it and I did, and uh, the district commander at that time, or the troop commander at that time, who was very much old school, was not on board with this, but he was passing it along from patrol headquarters. When I submitted my name, he sent a message back uh, that said, if you want a canine, I think I can find somewhere else in a different place to get you a canine assigned to you, meaning, you know, I'm going to transfer if you really want this canine. And again, you got to understand the internal culture of the organization. So some, uh, so I said, no, sir, no, sir, I'm not interested in one. So anyway, uh, there was another supervisor who had been involved in the early stages of it. Uh, he said, I thought you expressed interest in this. I said, I did, but uh, here's what, you know, what I was told. And he said, I'll take care of that. And I was like, oh, no, please don't get me in trouble here. <laughs> You're thinking Lumberton, here I come. You know what Trooper Cardwell just told me there, First Sergeant? Yeah. And so uh, anyway, uh, you know, next thing you know, uh, I got word that, hey, if you want a dog, uh, we'll assign you one. We're going to sign one to the central part of the state and one east part of the state. And uh, you report to this canine school, which was actually in Greensboro at the time. And uh, so we did. 
And um, anyway, the school was about 10 days, 11 days. You know, again, patrol hunting had a program at that time. They were just starting to get into it. And so getting the dog really helped uh, as far as going out roadside, learning what I was doing. Uh, And so I had made some phone calls to troopers that I had learned about on this epic Operation Pipeline Bulletin. There was a couple guys that I kept consistently reading their names. Uh, Mike was one Ralston. of them a guy named? Do you remember a guy named Jeff Faison out of Florida? Yes. Yeah, I remember his name. He was kind of the first generation that was uh, came along at the time. These other troopers I mentioned that taught us. Uh, and then there was some in the area, uh, neighboring states. Uh, Mike Ralston in Georgia State Patrol, Benji Hodges, Georgia. And uh, there were some others throughout the country, but uh, I can't remember what it was caused me to reach out to Mike one day because I had, you know, expressed interest in getting more training. But again, it wasn't the culture. So uh, somehow I made contact with Mike. He worked north of Atlanta on Interstate 75 and where I worked was Interstate 85 and Interstate 40. And I just cold called him and introduced myself. And uh, anyway... Uh, told him what I was seeking. He said, sure, you're welcome to come down and ride with me if you'd like. So I had to take vacation time because I couldn't get approval to go on patrol time. So I went down there and rode with him, spent my own money. And, um, you know, he took care of me really good. He showed me a lot. And, uh, and then I come back and we had had another gentleman by the name of Ed Lowry who had worked on Interstate 95 in Fayetteville in our agency. Uh, I had gotten approval to go ride with him. But I had to take vacation time, too. So I went and rode with him. And this was the watershed moment that you're speaking of. Uh, while riding with him on 95, uh, he was kind of the hottest guy uh, at that time, consistently making cases. And this was when everything was flowing out of South Florida back when Steve was, uh, you know, he was familiar with all the importation through South Florida. Well, everything those guys were getting was Miami connected in some way, shape, form or fashion. And I remember getting in a car with Ed, and he had just come off some days off, and uh, he says, Bo, I don't know if we're going to have any luck. And that's what he called everybody was Bo. I don't know why. That was just a habit of his. But he said, uh, but we're going to go out and try. I'm going to see if I can get you something. Well, the second car that he stopped, it was like that epic bulletin, teletype, Operation Pipeline played out before my eyes. The second stop, he gets a four-door, I believe it was a Buick, old four-door sedan coming out of Miami, registered out of New Jersey, male, female occupant, and uh, found a uh, compartment built between a rear seat and trunk. And it had like five kilos of Coke. I thought I was just, I was seeing it play out before my eyes. And that just, that was my watershed moment. I was like, this is what I want to do. I had been trying it up to that point with minimal success, but between him and Mike, it really opened my eyes to other things that I really had not been paying attention to, like human behavior, the interview, importance of the interview. And anyway, so when I left from there, I was really energetic. And so I come back and started applying it. And uh, having learned to operate my canine, I started looking at things differently as far as my approach and how to talk with people and what to look for roadside interview wise. And uh, so that first big seizure uh, was a U-Haul that had come out of uh, South Texas, which obviously still is today, but then the major source for our area, uh, it was a U-Haul, and it had about 850 pounds of marijuana in it. And once I got that, it was I was hooked. I mean, I was hooked 100%. Well, let's go back to that seizure of Coke. Um, when you opened it, did you know, I mean, when you when you saw the, the, the bricks, obviously, did you know what it was at that time, or what, did you did you kind of have to go? 
okay, wait, you know, I'm just kind of like, whoa, what, what, what is this? Oh, no, I know what that is. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, I had never seen the, uh, Kilo in, in person, and obviously uh, Ed had, but I had not. I'd seen many pictures, and so I'm like, well, that's what it really looks like, I guess. So, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a really good learning experience. Now, which the, so the 850 pounds of weed, that wasn't the case that you and I worked, was it? No, this was a uh, brother and sister. They had come out of San Antonio, and they were delivering somewhere in, uh, I think, around Richmond, Virginia area. But it's an interesting story on that. Uh, we had not had that kind of uh, seizures go through our court system. And when it went for first appearance the next morning, uh, the judge who was listening to uh, the probable cause hearing, he said, uh, he pulled me to the side before the hearing. He said, now, from what I'm told, you can't do this. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, <laughs> you, you, you can't, make you, arrest you can't just go in and start searching somebody's belongings. And I said, well, I didn't, sir. I said, uh, they gave me permission. And he was like, what? And I said, yes, sir. He said, they gave you permission to search that truck knowing that they were carrying this? I said, yeah. And he's like, oh, okay. So, you know, it was a learning experience for uh, a lot of us, you know, through the court process. And, uh, you I know, I love myself. the way the judge was having a, 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 um, uh, a, you know, a preliminary hearing out in the hallway before anybody was even sworn in, you know? Well, well again, it's a small, you know, small community, you know. And uh, anyway, you know, everybody knew everybody. And, uh, you know, I'd built a good rapport with this judge. And uh, I just remember that conversation. And he, once I said that, he said, uh, wow, can't believe somebody would do that. I said, well, he said, where'd you learn to do this? And I told him, and he said, so they tell you to ask people to search the vehicle if, you know, if uh, you think you're suspicious to, you know, want to look for something else? I said, yes, sir. And he said, and they actually do? I said, yes, sir, <laughs> they do. It's unbelievable. It is. And it, was know, a, it goes back to your point you were making. If you understand human behavior, if you understand how to talk to them and set the right circumstances, I mean, even to this day, uh, Murph and I were talking about it on our Patreon channel, but I got, at the time, it was the largest seizure of cash in Kansas, but it was only a quarter of a million. I mean, they've gotten much bigger stuff now. And people are going, I mean, they let you search the car. The guy, I remember to this day, his name is Brian Lacey. I looked at him, I said, now, you know, is there, you know, do you have anything that would uh, be illegal in the state of Kansas? You know, guns, drugs, large amounts of cash. He says, no. I said, would you? And one question, one thing I learned to ask was not, can I search? Because people always want to say no. I said, would you have any objection if I search for these items? And they would say no. Well, no meant yes. Uh, he and I, he was he even offered to show me. Hey, I got a briefcase here. I opened up the trunk. There's the cash, and in his briefcase, plans for a methamphetamine laboratory. He had a <laughs> marijuana press. It's like you dumb son of a bitch. All you had to say was no, and I, there's we didn't have a canine at that point. There's not much I could have done. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's uh, I, you know I was just thinking, Tim. Remember uh, Dave Wilhelm with Customs? Yes, down in Charlotte, and he was mm -hmm. murdered in Atlanta. So God rest him. But. Uh, he called me one day and he, and I think, I can't remember if it was Ashburn, I think it might've been Randleman. And he called and he says, Hey Murphy, he said, I, I got a tip, you know, this, this trailer out in the country is, uh, some Mexicans are in there supposed to be sitting on a big stash of weed. He said, I need somebody to speak Spanish. So I met him down there we took some people with us and, uh, walked up to this trailer and had, I remember the, it was a, a huge lot with these big tall pine trees, but there were no limbs from like you know, 10 feet, 12 feet high before the limb started. So you had this wide open, you know, we think of as a killing field that you have to go through to get to that front door. But we have no reason to be pulling our weapons out, you know, to go up, you know, like we're going to do a tactical entry. We knock on the door and, uh, and I get up there and do use my Spanish. And, and they're like, yeah, come on in. 
We go inside. <laughs> I forget how many. It's 1,200 pounds of weed or whatever. They'd been using saws to cut it up. Yeah. But there was an AR-15 sitting behind the front door. Oh, I mean, scary. they could have pulled that wiped us all out. But it's just, it's just amazing. They're sitting on the dope, and they're like, sure, come on in. Yeah. You know, and Tim, I don't know if you remember seeing this video. If it was a Texas DPS trooper, but he's on the side of the road and he's talking to this guy in that Texas draw going, now, son, you got anything that's illegal? You got anything? Well, and he, so he's talking and you can see it's the, the old dash cam. This kid's getting nervous. He says, now, do you have anything in the car that's illegal? No. And he's like, would you mind if I checked your car? And this kid just vapor locks and passes out into the ditch. Yeah. He goes, well, I'll take that as an admission of guilt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We actually had a couple folks pass out on us uh, similar to that. But, yeah, it's it's amazing. I, you know, uh, I, it, I, I couldn't understand it either. But, you know, I guess they just didn't want to seem like uh, make any more suspicions. I was just going to say, I was going to get in the next one because I, w- I want you to talk about the case where you almost got killed out there on the side of the road. Yeah, let's talk about that. But lead into it, let's kind of preface it by saying part of it's human behavior, right? How did you learn that part of it? Just through trial and error? Did you end up going through some training? Because, look, the uh, the best interdiction people are the ones who can read people. Uh, you yes. Know, you yes. Know, and so how did you develop that <clears throat> skill? It took a lot, uh, quite a while. Uh, and where I learned it at was a series of training courses, but the one in particular that I give a lot of credit to was a gentleman by the name of Don Rabin, who wrote a lot of the uh, interview and interrogation program for the state of North Carolina. He worked at our Justice Academy and was a law enforcement guy early part of his career. And that's where he spent, uh, you know, really focused on. He's a really smart guy. And uh, he uh, taught a course that I attended, uh, interview and interrogation skills. It was just an eight-hour introductory course at the time. And uh, but again, it I think that's what really opened me to understanding the human side of it uh, through the verbal and nonverbal cues of how to talk with people, communicate. And then after taking that initial course, I took follow-up training from him, and every time I left it, I was able to apply, you know, uh, different teachings from it. And, you know, it taught me to, I, I was missing on comments that people would make strong cues. And, uh, you know, like if you'd ask them a question, then they'd give you an answer, but they really wasn't answering the question. They were avoiding answering your question. And so that really opened up my eyes to understanding that. And then it was a series of just uh, paying attention better. And learning the importance of, you know, one of the best communication skills is listening. And, you know, it, it, and it's hard to manage that, especially at a young career to where you get into those hyper uh, adrenaline type, high adrenaline situations to where you think you may have something that's easy to lose your wherewithal and not really listen and catch up on those uh, simple cues that people are giving you. Or and the so nonverbal that, stuff that you mentioned. Yes. That it's not what they say. It's how they act and what yes. they do. And I was missing all of that at my young age. And, you know, it's kind of like information overload when I started it, when I had ridden with Trooper Ralston and uh, Trooper Lowry and taking the training in, in, uh, you know, our internal class. It was just information overload. And I was missing those important parts. And once I got introduced to them through Don, that's when it really started applying. That's the time where my light come on as far as, hey, I know what what I'm uh, looking for here. And it was much easier to identify. Well, Murph, you teed it up. I mean, you, you can't. You know, where are we going to go from there? Well, let's tell us about the time you almost got killed. So, uh, okay. And I'm not talking about the time you got out without your hat on and almost got run over by a, <laughs> you know, car. So, um, but, but obviously, this is a dangerous business. This is a dangerous sport when you're out there doing interdiction. You got people who are 
you know, don't know what they're doing, but you got other people, you got cartel stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's, it tends to be a dangerous business, but. Um, well, and like you've talked about before, Morgan, your backup could be 30, 45 minutes away. Hell, I was only guy out sometimes for four counties. You know, um, a lot of the sheriff's office weren't full service. I mean, you, you're out there by yourself. Uh, my first stolen car I got, it, my closest backup was 30 minutes away. I finally arrested yes. the guy. I said, just get the hell out of the car, get on the <laughs> ground, <laughs> you know. But let's hear about your story. So set the stage for this. Where were you? What were you doing? About what year was it? So this would have been uh, about 1992, I think it was. So uh, I'll go back a little bit before because it's important to say this that leads into this encounter. I had started getting successful on a more consistent basis with larger amounts. Uh, you know, again, I started interdiction in 88. And so through that several years of learning and starting to increase the frequency with when I was making seizures and the amounts that were involved, uh, I had started learning more and could just you know, uh, understand what I was doing much better. And uh, I, rem- I remember sitting there after having, you know, several success successful stops with passenger cars and vans. Uh, I wanted to get into looking at tractor trailers, and there was very limited training on tractor trailers at that time also. And so I had started that. And, hey, let me uh, ask you a quick question before you get into yes. that, because you said you started getting better. Was it, be, you know, so were you just making more stops and you're playing the law of, law of large numbers, or were you getting better at identifying the things you wanted to stop? Better at identifying, not what I was stopping because I was a high volume traffic stop guy. I stopped a lot of cars and, you know, but I got much more proficient at understanding what I was looking for. And so what I mean by that, I always got better was my search ratio to find ratio became much better. Uh, I felt like I was more proficient at understanding. And it seemed like when I would ask for permission to search or if somebody refused and I utilized the canine, uh, it just seemed like I was uh, uh, finding it on a more consistent basis without, you know, not finding anything. That's what I mean by that. Give us it to give it to us in baseball terms. What was your what was your batting average when you started getting really good at this? Uh, I'd say I was hitting about every uh, three out of four, so to speak, some type of criminality, and it might not be to the level of a huge trafficking seizure, but I was finding some kind of criminality. And you know, this is one of the big teachers from interdiction itself. It's a, it's a really uh, uh, how can I say humbling effort. Uh, because, you know, you can put a lot of effort out there and not have the, uh, the most results that you think you could. But uh, what I found was <clears throat> when I was able to identify something else was going on here, a lot, you know, a lot of times it might not be narcotics. It could be something as simple as some other criminality or somebody doing something immoral. Uh, you know, that was one of the things I, I remember taking away and using. I later got into teaching was, you know, uh, you might encounter somebody who's a player that's not playing at the time, uh, but they're, they're mentally they're guilty and they're displaying a lot of the same characteristics as if they had something, or they could be doing something immoral and you just happen to encounter them during that time period because different people have different levels of moral, uh, you know, approach to life. And so a number of times I would encounter folks that were cheating on a spouse you know, or they were uh, doing something else. They might not have it at the time. You know, they may have just stolen something, but they didn't have it in a car. So, were they locked in the back seat of a <laughs> patrol car and couldn't get out? <laughs> Maybe. 
<laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> that's a good one. But uh, so, you know, that, those that's what I mean by I felt like I got more proficient uh, at being able to identify when something was wrong, even though it may not have been narcotics or, you know, they may have had a couple of guns and they were trying to conceal them from you or whatever. But what was the biggest giveaway for you? Was it verbal or nonverbal? Both. Uh, you said something a while ago that uh, I, I found that I was applying more than anything consistently, which was how they reacted when I would ask a question and how they reacted while they were answering it. Yeah. Uh, that nonverbal cue was huge for me. But as Don taught me, it was clusters of cues. One by itself didn't mean anything, but when you started seeing clusters of them consistently, that's what, that's what we what used to teach to. when I taught interview and interrogation. That's what we looked at. Looked at look at how they act right before, during, and after the answers, and that's what you're looking for is a cluster of behaviors. Yes. Are they doing things to delay? Are they clearing their throat? Are they reaching down, releasing tension by pulling? For guys, number one clue for me on a lot of times was they pulled up their socks. You'd be interviewing them in a room. They'd have to reach down and pull up their socks. Yeah. It's like, yeah. how many times can you do that, pal? You know? Exactly. So anyway, through that time period, uh, going back to the truck thing, uh, I decided, you know, I want to find, I want to start looking at trucks and I had no training on uh, commercial vehicles. So, you know, I kind of took the old approach that my dad did when he taught me how to swim, which was he threw me in, said sink or swim kind of deal. And so I just started stopping them and learning. And uh, somebody had told me, if you really want to learn about the commercial industry, talk to a professional truck driver. Weren't you stopping trucks, though, as part of your normal duties? We used to have to do truck checks. They would expect, you know, do truck checks, check their logs and do stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, you were already stopping trucks, though, right? No, no. Uh, at that time, uh, the patrol did not have regulatory authority. Uh, no that was kidding. Our, yeah, that was our Division Motor Vehicles Enforcement Group, which is what I mentioned earlier part of our conversation. Uh, through my career, they were then merged in with our agency. So they had regulatory authority, but we had none at all as far as the federal regulations. And so we didn't stop a lot of trucks. Occasionally, you would encounter one, but uh, for the most part, we didn't. And so <clears throat> once I got into doing that and learning about the industry, what are, you know norms were and you know what was cost effective, uh, anyway, I started uh, paying more attention and trying to apply those principles uh, and teachings from the uh, passenger cars. And I started having some success with trucks. I'll never forget my first truck seizure uh, was two guys uh, uh, that uh, when I got permission to search, I had them stand out by the wood line and I was by myself. And this is an important point to make because that's what leads into the story. I had uh, went into their cab and opened the uh, sleeper curtain and there was four U-Haul boxes and they were so heavy, you couldn't pick them up. Well, I cut it with a knife and saw it was kilos of cocaine. And so I immediately went out and arrested them. And, uh, you know, and it turned out to be it was about 300 pounds of coke. And so that kind of led me down this path of I started having more success with trucks. And uh, some of the seizures kept getting a little bigger as far as quantity wise. And that's where, uh, you know, my interaction with DEA really started coming in more consistently was they were coming out and responding to follow up and work these uh, cases. And taking credit and putting out the press release, just like the FBI, <laughs> right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and so uh, that leads into, you know, in that time period, that four to five year time period, I had had a number of successes, encounters, and I uh, had gotten a little brazen, a little bold, you know, searching by myself. And a lot of times I had backup, but sometimes I didn't. So going to this particular case that Steve mentioned, uh, I was working early one morning and I had uh, worked, uh, it was uh, an overtime shift. 
my shift uh, at that time, I had started working on an interstate operation, which is a temporary assignment. My shift mates were off. And so I went out working and uh, very first stop, uh, two cars passed me. They were originally speeding. And uh, when they went past, uh, it was a male, two males in the front vehicle. And the second vehicle was a uh, female with an infant child. I could see the car seat in the back. And they started changing lanes together and slowed way down. And I had clocked them at like maybe 10 over the speed limit. I think it was like 65 and a 55 or something. So I catch up with them and stop them. And uh, both of them are rental cars. And so I get to talking with them. And uh, they said, no, we don't know each other. We're not traveling together. But yet when I got the rental agreements, they were both rented same location. And the name that had rented both of them was the same, which was the passenger in the front car. Yeah. And so recognizing, you know, hey, this may be. Recognizing that is a clue. (laughs) Yes. And they were coming out of New Orleans going back to, uh, I believe it was New York. Um, I thought, you know, I haven't encountered this, but this may be a decoy escort type vehicle situation because continuing to read those teletypes from the Epic Pipeline bulletins, I was seeing that more and more. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. And so being familiar with that trend, I thought, well, maybe it is. So I had called for backup and nobody was in the area and was available. And so I went ahead and asked for permission to search. Yeah, you can go ahead. So thinking that, well, if it is one of these types of decoy type situations, the female may have it if she's transporting anything and the other two are decoys. And so I got the key from her, had everybody stand off to the side again by myself. 
and I pop a trunk and lo and behold, right there, you know, duffel bags containing big block marijuana, like we used to find, you know, back in the, that era. And so I immediately go to them and uh, order them on the ground. And uh, the two males are hesitant, but the female, she starts crying. And so it gets a little chaotic and they both finally go down on the ground. And um, I go, uh, you know, as, as we all do, you assess the situation of, you know, okay, which one's the biggest threat to me? Yeah. And I was going to ask you about that because standard uniform, right, is you got your pistol, uh, ammo. I mean, what were you carrying at the time, revolver or semi-automatic? We had just transitioned to semi-automatic shortly before this. We had traditionally carried the three fifty seven revolvers. That's what we had, the Smith & Wesson 686. Yes. You know, but, but, but you only usually, at that time too, you standard uniform, right, carry one set of handcuffs. So you got yes. three people, one set of handcuffs. Exactly. And so, you know, it, it was a lot of lessons in this. But uh, anyway, the... Uh, I'm sorry, the the driver was the one that the vehicles were in the name of. The passenger, his name was not on any anywhere, but he was the one that I assessed, you know, if I'm going to have problems, he's the one I need to secure first. Because I had been in some scrapes before and done this, you know, where I was able to, you know, come out of it on the right side of it. And one more quick question. Um, I remember it took years before we got our first handheld radios because we had to do everything on the outside speaker. Uh, were you equipped at that time? Did you have your own handheld radio? We had one, but I didn't have it on me. It was in the car. So, again, this goes back in the old days of patrol, you know, the culture. And, uh, you know, we've really advanced a lot from then. But uh, so one one set of cuffs, no walkie-talkie. Uh, I go to arrest him, and uh, he decides he wants to, uh, you know, not cooperate. And when I go hands-on, and so we get into a, a, a struggle, and the other guy, he jumps up, and he jumps into the struggle. So now I've got both of them that I'm tussling with. And so we just commenced to swinging at each other. And um, so you got, got to set the stage. My dog, he was uh, in a car and he was barking and I uh, had allowed, you know, had a way for him to get out of the car if I was needing. He was trained to respond when he saw aggression. So was he not just narcotics, but also patrol? Yes, he was patrol and narcotics. So he was trained, you know, to provide protection. So here I am tussling with these two guys and, um, I, you know, I recognize I've got to get this under control quick or this is going to go really bad. And I remember uh, swinging to hit the uh, the guy that I thought was the uh, the most uh, danger to me. And when I did, I swung so hard, I hit him, but it swung me so hard that my gun side swung around to him. And uh, he kind of took his shoulder and pinned it up under my armpit. And he come out with my gun in no time at all. And, I, you know, when I recognized it, I thought, oh, this ain't good. And. I hollered for the for a dog. His name was Lobo. Uh, hollered for him. You know, I gave him the uh, command to come and uh, you know uh, respond. And you know, and I realized I've got to separate myself from here because this guy had full control of my gun, and uh, the other guy backed off. And so I started backing up, trying to get some distance. And the dog came up, and as this guy was bringing the gun up towards me to shoot, he uh, had accidentally ejected the magazine. Which, you know, that was one of the benefits of transitioning at that time. You had that extra layer of protection with the uh, uh, safety switch. So he didn't hit the safety switch. He first hit the magazine eject. So that was just a little bit of short time frame there that's, you know, that allowed me to get a little bit more space. Um, and what kind of weapon was that? It, uh, what, what, would you, what were you carrying? Beretta 9 millimeter. Oh, and I don't recall on the Beretta. I, I've got a Beretta Model 96, but it's a 40 caliber. I don't remember. If you eject the magazine, will it still function? Yes. Yeah. The first, yeah. the one shot? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I, 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 thank goodness this guy wasn't very familiar with it. 
And so when he started pointing it up at me, uh, you know, it started trying to run, uh, get some distance and zigzag. Well, the dog, fortunately, as he had been trained to do, he uh, went and uh, took him down. And, um, you know, it's really funny when you encounter these type of situations, how you respond and what you think. But uh, he did his job and he allowed me to get some cover and then being worried for his safety because I developed a strong bond with him. I called him off and he was very obedient. So he come off of the guy. But he had taken him down enough, you know, to give me time to get some cover. And so there I was, cover, and he come back to me, and these two guys get together, and they take off and run and get in their car and uh, flee. And so I'm like, oh, boy, what do I do now? You know, and so I did gather my wherewithal once I realized what it, you know, uh, was able to piece everything together. And I told the female, I said, you stay right here. And I took her keys, closed the trunk and locked the door so she couldn't leave on the car because I thought, well, if she decides to flee on foot, you know, it'll be easier to find her with an infant. And I jump in my patrol car and take off after these guys with no gun, but I get my shotgun out. And so I'm calling it in. And uh, uh, anyway, we were able to uh, I was able to follow them to uh, the next exit where I saw them exit and they went down a dead end road and fled on foot. And uh, so I was able to pause everything there till uh, all the backup got there. and We were able to capture them in the woods later. Did they resist any with your weapon? Yes. Uh, they, he had the weapon on him. And I'm sorry, they, he had dumped the weapon on the track. They brought uh, the sheriff's office who uh, they were really good at manhunts. Uh, some of the guys that I had developed a really good relationship with back in this day, working in a county, you know, we, in a rural county, we would respond, I would help them on calls and they would, uh, you know, respond, uh, helping me whenever the need was there. We used to scan a patrol cause we couldn't communicate on radios. We had CB radios and we would, uh, scan a patrol cause we each had a scanner. And, uh, so these guys came in and, uh, you know, they, I, they kind of put me on the sideline, so to speak, after, uh, uh, you know, my supervisor chain got there and coworkers and they went in and they found him and he had, they found the gun on the track. And, uh, anyway, they brought him out and, uh, you know, we were able to get both of them, uh, you know, inc- uh, arrested and, uh, one of them eventually cooperated and recovered the gun. So, you know, it was about, a, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a strong, faithful person and that just increased my faith because I believe it was a guardian angel, looking after me that day and the way the cavalry got there so fast and what I didn't know at the time helped was there was a off-duty detective who was passing by on his way from home, going to work in a neighboring county whom I knew. He had stopped in the median. He said, seen us fighting. He had stopped in the median and uh, he recognized what had happened and he drew down on him and started shouting commands across the highway. And that's what caused them to uh, decide to flee. So and you didn't hear that? No, I did not hear that at the time. Did you know he was so you didn't even know he was there at the time then? I did not. So we're on the shoulder of the highway. It's a three-lane highway in each direction and he was in the median uh directly across from us. Uh, his name was Gary Llewellyn and uh you know, he's the one that saw it, assessed it and uh he got out and hollered commands and uh drew his weapon and uh this was you know, when he realized that they had gained control of my gun, he had seen us fighting and that's why he had stopped. And uh, so that's what caused him to leave the scene. So, you know, it was he was my guardian angel that day. That's a man that will never pay for another beer in a bar that you're at, right? (laughs) Well, trust me, he's near and dear to my heart, and we've had many conversations about it. And, uh, you know, he's he's a good friend. 
And good thing Lobo did his job too, right? Yes, yes he did. And, you know, I, I didn't understand why he come off at the time, but Gary had told me, he said, well, you were calling him off because Gary was familiar with the canines and commands. And uh, he was the, uh, I think, the uh, commander for the department he worked in, which is a neighboring sheriff's office. He was the commander over their drug unit. And uh, he said, well, you were calling him off. And I was like, you know, I didn't even realize it. And I think what it was, I was concerned for him getting, you know, uh, shot, but he had done his job, thank goodness. Yeah. And so, anyway, they were able to, uh, uh, we were able to get them incarcerated. And uh, the the whole rest of the story to it was they had uh, went to New Orleans. Uh, The marijuana had been brought in on a ship at the port. And um, the guy was driving, was a diver and he had went down it had uh they had containers welded to the bottom of the ships and he had went down and uh retrieved some of these uh, packages and then was taking some back along with the other guy and one that was the uh, primary aggressor he was part uh he had been uh, uh identified as part of a jamaican posse and he was the enforcer for that group. And uh, the guy who cooperated turned evidence against him, testified, said he had, you know, he had done quite a bit of uh, successful enforcements for the group that he was affiliated with. And so, but we were able to get it into a federal court and prosecute him. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah, it had, a, it had a good ending to it, thank goodness. So, the, so did the rat bastard, they end up giving him some decent amount of time? Yeah, he got a good amount of time. And it actually made federal case law at the time. Uh, you know, when you use a weapon in the commission of a felony, uh, you know, it's a federal offense when you use a gun. Well, he didn't have a gun on him at the time, but when he was able to gain control of my gun. He had constructive possession of a firearm at that point. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. And so it, uh, it actually made case law and, uh, you know, not the way you want to make case law, but, you know, there were some great lessons from that. And, uh, you know, which, of course, when I later got into teaching, that was one of my primary teaching points was never search a vehicle by yourself. And uh, so I did you you search a vehicle by yourself after that? No, no. I cut people loose before I would do that. So, you know, it was it was a moment that, uh, you know, it's it's not worth a good guy getting hurt. Exactly. Dope. Yeah, there's no amount of dope that's worth uh, you taking a bullet. Yeah, and that's why it was so important for me to set the stage leading up to that because it was a mentality behind it. I was having good success, and I was able to handle most situations by myself if I didn't have backup. And so you kind of become immune to your good officer safety skills. And uh, so it was a quick reminder that fortunately I was able to survive. Well. You know, you putting on that, and I was guilty of it too. You put on that trooper uniform, you think you're 10 feet tall and bulletproof. It's like, mm-hmm. and yes. then you have one of those days where it's like, yeah, I don't think I am, you know? <laughs> exactly. A really scary dose of reality. Yeah. Oh. So, uh, but yeah, fortunately it was a positive outcome from it. But uh, that was a time period where I was really learning my craft, so to speak, and uh, having a lot of good teachers, instructors that, you know, set really good examples for me, uh, you know. Help me get to that point. And the thing about it was, every one of them had told me, don't ever search a car by yourself. But you And know, what did you do? Search the car by myself. <laughs> <laughs> and so, no. you know, you become immune to, uh, you know, the all obvious. I can, all I can imagine is your training officer's hand outside the door going, whoo, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was definitely, uh, you know, something I don't want to repeat again. But, uh, you know, this I, and I'm sorry we're running out of time here. Tim, we want to be respectful of your time. But 
uh, Tim and I got to work so many cases together there and, and uh, just got to be such close friends and, you know, families got to be close and, <clears throat> excuse me, going to cookouts and, and the fact that part of the, you know, our listeners, our regular listeners have heard us talk about it before, Morgan, where, you know, you become friends in law enforcement, you're friends for life. Yeah. Yes. And it's, I, you know, Tim and I, we probably talk, what, maybe every four to six months? Yes. Just catch up a few minutes and then we bump into each other occasionally at conferences and and things like that. But, um, and just quickly, we've got to talk about the North Carolina thing and we'll, we'll just do the Reader's Digest version. It was, it was my last job as an undercover agent trying to buy weed off of these uh, two West Virginia hillbillies that were living in Mount Airy, which, you know, everybody calls Mayberry. Yes. And, uh We'd been through uh, we'd been through a lot of undercover meetings. It was two brothers. One was acting kind of decent. The other just acted real squirrely. He was the danger guy. And so when we finally got it set up, we had an informant. Uh, they were going to deliver. I think it was four hundred pounds of weed. Does this involve Kevin Black? No, no, he no he. Well, if we needed somebody to crap his pants, we'd call Kevin. But we, didn't. we didn't on this job. <laughs> but, you know, we put a we put a hidden camera on a U-Haul truck. Our informant went up with the bad guys on the Blue Ridge Parkway into Virginia, picked up the load. Now, I called Tim, and, I, and this was, you know, obviously this was before we did a deal. And I said, here's the scenario. I'm at the Mayberry Mall. They're going to come across the state line on this road from Virginia. You got from the state line to the Mar- Mayberry Mall to develop PC for a traffic stop, seize that dope, because we want this t- case to continue. And you know what he did? He developed PC and stopped the truck before it got to me, um, seized the dope. Uh, squirrely guy comes screaming in the parking lot. Oh, they, the cops just got the dope, just got the dope, you know, and, and they're all looking at me and, and I'm just cussing them out. Like, you guys set me up. Want to use a snitch? And I had the boss's Cadillac. You remember that old Cadillac? That, yes. Uh, was it John Linton maybe had back then? Yes, it was. And, uh, I hit the gas boy and I spun out of the parking lot and I drove all the way back to Greensboro, which is about an hour drive. But that's the professionalism of these guys. You know, they, they know what they're doing. You're in a slick top car on top of that, which means there were no lights on top of it. You had, I think you had markings on the sides, right? Yes, we did. But, uh, I, you know, I mean, if you want to expound on how you did that, that's I, I'm in awe of what you did that day. Well, so, you know, I got to give a shout out to Murph. Uh, when he came to Greensboro, it's at a time when our uh, relationship with the uh, DEA was growing. And, uh, but there was a few agents there that really didn't respond to our request in a way in which we had hoped. And when Steve came, uh, he, you know, new guy, obviously we want to give him a try. And I'm here to tell you, he responded with energy, with, uh, enthusiasm, and, uh, he went well above and beyond, not what we had traditionally encountered. And uh, so he quickly became a fan favorite of ours. And uh, then, you know, we recognized the hillbilly accent being from West Virginia. That's where my part of my family has migrated from was West Virginia. And uh, anyway, long and short of it is, uh, you know, he connected with us. He was very energetic, as I said. And so we grew a tremendous uh, relationship with him, invited him in, you know, doing the cookouts and so forth. So whenever he called us, we were quick to respond. And so to this particular incident, um, when he asked us to help, obviously we want to do the best we can. And so what he's not telling you was from where Mayberry Mall was to the state line was a distance of about a mile, if that yeah. much. Mile, mile, <laughs> you're, maybe you're a mile a and a half. You got to be challenged. Yeah, you know? mile to a mile and a half, maybe. 
And so we needed, you know, every inch of that. So I'm sitting there waiting and he says, hey, it's on a way. And he gave me a description. So, you know, this was a U.S. highway, four lane, but it was coming off of a two lane coming down the mountain. And so when it crosses the state line, I'm sitting there and to, you know, I, I tried to make myself as visual as possible. So when a guy sees us, he slows down and uh, he sees me, uh, you know, pulling across the median and he's watching us so close. What he does is he runs off the shoulder of the road about half of his vehicle. And I oh, thought you're that, to maintain lane. Yeah, there you go. That's all I need. You know, I think he may be impaired. So I was able to get him stopped pretty quick. And uh, of course, the cavalry come in, you know, all my uh, coworkers and, uh, you know, we always work. Well, wait a very minute. Well you together. waited for backup this time before you searched the vehicle? Yeah. Well, I approached him, but uh, backup <laughs> was very close by, trust me. And uh, so anyway, we were able to, uh, you know, to proceed and uh, get to weed and get him incarcerated. So, you know, but again, you know, going back to uh, Murph, he was really good to work with. And whatever he needed us to do, we were going to try to help out as best as possible. So it was a successful case where we were able to help him because he helped us a number of times. And, and you know, I, and so you mentioned uh, Danville, Virginia a while ago, Morgan. So we, we just let this case ride for about three months. Didn't call anybody, just let things calm down. And the bad guys were so desperate to make money. They called me back. Now, they already lost 400 pounds of weed. And, you know, back then, the price, I don't know, was probably $1,200 a pound, something like that. Yeah. And they're like, listen, you know, we, we've got another load that we want to do with you if you're still interested in buying it. I said, yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, I didn't get arrested, so I guess you guys aren't the snitches. And uh, they said, we're not going back to Mount Airy. That's where they live. So we're going to go to Virginia. So I thought we were going to Danville. We ended up in Martinsville, up where the yeah. Speedway is. Yeah, which is just north of where I lived. And, and back then... uh we called in, uh, remember Charlie Wayne Moore? Yes. From Virginia State Police. He was with their uh, Criminal Investigation Bureau up there at Virginia State Police. And, and he's, I sound like I'm new, from New York compared to Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, some of them Southern Virginia boys, that accent, it's, it's, it's a different one too. I knew a guy from the state police called Mike Monroe. First time I ran into him at training, it's like, where are you from? I'm from Richmond, sir. You know, yeah. just, just the way they would do it. It's kind of totally different than North Carolina than South Carolina. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But that, I mean, that's how desperate these people are. They, they make stupid decisions. We're able to capitalize on that. But the, the whole point of this is two, two things I want to point out. One is that's, the, that's what teamwork's all about. You know, at that time, we had five agents to cover. I think it was 24 counties or 26 counties, something like that, in the Middle District of North Carolina. You had to reply, you know, rely on the state and local officers there, uh, which was fantastic. And it, you know, the fact that I was a local officer that broke down a lot of barriers coming in as a Fed. And you, you know, just like you and I say, Morgan, you can't have thin skin, and they're going to bust your pot chops, and you take it. <laughs> I know we did. <laughs> I took my shots when I could, and, and I still do on these podcasts. But the other point I want to make is the reason there's so many people from West Virginia that live in North Carolina is because that's as far as a tank of gas will get you. <laughs> that's a lot of truth to that. There's no joke. That's how my family ended up here. Ran out of money. We'll just stay here, Gomer. Yep. Hey, now I got to tell you, now, um, obviously Mount Airy, you know, we, we talk about Mayberry RFT. And I'll tell you, one of the best shows I think ever on TV, because Andy Griffith gave out mm -hmm. some of the best parenting advice to Opie, you know, um, Richie Cunningham. But um, was... I don't want to say was it a stereotype, but did you actually have a few guys like that, like Barney and Andy, in some of your areas there? When you go to some of the uh, more rural areas, not to that level, but there was always a reference to that. And uh, one of the things that uh, uh, one of my training folks uh, told me says, "Hey, use it to your advantage." 
you know, uh, you know, use the good old boy approach and charm and uh, make them think, you know, that you don't know what's going on. And uh, we did, and it was very successful. But, you know, uh, you know, in some of the more rural places, you know, you had some that were probably lesser trained than others. And uh, did you ever run into a guy that carried his bullet in his pocket? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I ever counted that. I don't think I did. Hey, look, no, I'm from Kansas. You wouldn't believe the crap I said. Hey, did you date Dorothy? You know, you know, yeah, uh, yeah you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> let me ask you guys a question. Can I yeah. pause just for one minute for a restroom break, if that's okay? No, it's not allowed, man. Suck it up, <laughs> trooper. No, hold on. You don't mind. Well, Tim feels better. And if Tim feels better, we feel better. That's absolutely right. We'll take care of our guests. <laughs> what did I tell you earlier at our age, our guys, we got to pee all the time. So, hey, they just catching up with me. Trust me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> So, um, you know, and like I said, we don't want to give short shrift to stuff, but I mean, there's so many more stories and it's like with so many people, we've got to, you know, we'll have to revisit this, but let, let's, let's do a couple minutes on what you're doing now, because what I think you're doing now is very important, you know, and then we'll bring it to a close. But, um, how many years did you have on the uh, state patrol when you decided it was time to uh, file your paper? Uh, I did 25 years with the state. And, uh, so when I retire, <clears throat> I go back. Excuse me, what I had mentioned earlier about when I started, uh, just one, you know, the same month that I turned 18. The, all that time counted. I was at the uh, city for about two two years and eight months before I went with the state. And so with accumulated sick leave and going back and being able to use that time, I was able to apply to get a full retirement at 46 years old with uh, 30 years and two months of credible service. Wow. Yeah, but but you didn't leave law enforcement, did you? No, no. Um, I stayed out about four months when I retired, and then went to work uh, for the sheriff, which uh, had later became the sheriff in a county that I was the first assigned in Randolph County. And uh, he told me he came to my retirement lunch, and he said, "If you don't have any plans, let me know." He said, "I got a job for you." And at the time, I had you know through my career, I had been doing a lot of interdiction teaching, and uh, I thought I might go in that direction. But uh, this was an opportunity that came up. Uh, he offered, and uh, the DEA rack in Greensboro at the time, Wally Cerniak, uh, he had expressed interest in you know uh, me coming to work there. I had started a freight interdiction program towards the last part of my career, and he expressed interest in you know having some involvement with that. And so that's what I did. Uh, stayed out four months, went to work sheriff's department, was assigned to DEA in Greensboro, and uh, worked there for about four and a half years as a task force. And I. I got to tell you, I was a kid in a candy store at that time. I was pretending to be Steve Murphy Jr. (laughs) And uh, I'm just here to tell you, you know, through my career, uh, you know, I was always impressed with the uh, DEA folks as well as the, uh, you know, the ICE HSI folks. And uh, but Steve was one of my heroes. And I and I mean it sincerely. I just always looked at him, you know, as a success story. And I thought, you know, I'd like to experience what he gets to experience on that side of it because i'd done the interdiction uniform side but i hadn't got to do the other side of it and so you know coming out of uniform uh clean shaven no facial hair you know clean cut uniform uh first thing i did was grow a beard wear blue jeans and a t-shirt and drive a cadillac and uh, i was a kid Hell, a there you scroll. are junior dea agent right there man. i was yes yeah, well you know what the problem was he was addicted to cocaine just in a different way <laughs> i'm telling you <laughs> But, uh, you know, that was a really fun part, you know, uh, after retiring, getting to go do that. And uh, so I did that about four and a half years. And then that led me into private industry uh, through some of the freight contacts I had uh, developed in the freight industry doing freight interdiction. And I went to work as a security investigator for one of the national carriers, 
did that for a couple of years. And then uh, six years ago, that led me to this position that I serve in now. So, Which is? Can you say what it is? Well, you're clean shaven and dressed up, so it's got to be something <laughs> reputable. Well, it is. Uh, so uh, I work, now work for HIDA, High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. You guys are familiar with that. Well, HIDA... Uh, years ago, had started a, a national initiative called Domestic Highway Enforcement, and uh, it's known throughout our law enforcement community as DHE. And the gist of it is, uh, it's a uh, information gathering and sharing program. Uh, we have a platform where uh, we have a network of officers, analysts, investigators from coast to coast at state, local, and federal level. Uh, we communicate with them on a regular basis, and the cool part to it is. Some of the folks involved are people that I met back in the late 80s and early 90s are involved in some capacity to include some of your old co-workers at Kansas HP, uh, BK Smith, Kirk Simone. I know Kirk. Yeah, he was actually one of he was one of the most effective people. He he took the interdiction program to a new level with KHP. Yes. Well, he's still involved in an asset forfeiture level uh, being retired now, but. You know, knowing those guys through the years, uh, and there was many others, you know, like I said, I came in on the second wave of generation for interdiction guys. And so through that teaching, I was able to grow the network at the different levels and uh, to the third and what I call fourth generation. And so I get to communicate with all those old folks like me uh, to the young guys, uh, you know, to the one and two year, five year guys now and being able to be involved and communicate with them through, uh, you know, through this common uh, topic of interdiction is really cool. So that's what we do. I have a colleague, uh, Mike Snyders. He's, uh, he and I met as young troopers in the early 90s teaching interdiction. He was one of their uh, top getters at the uh, Illinois State Police. And uh, he's uh, my colleague. He's a national coordinator, and I'm the deputy national coordinator. But he rose to the rank of colonel. And uh, so he's got a really storied career, really wonderful leader. I enjoy working with, learned a lot from him, very intelligent guy. Uh, he leads our effort. Um, you know, this national initiative, it's about gathering information and sharing it with interdiction guys nationwide. We have what we call swaths of interstate that we title corridors. And uh, we host about 75 to 80 calls a year. Uh, just talking about interdiction tactics, trends, you know, concealments. And, uh, you know, we get to do it at the national level. And uh, it's a really fun job to be able to do that. And we do other things, but that's our primary foundation. And uh, I was on a call for about an hour and 20 minutes just before coming on with this one. We did the Interstate 10 20 40 corridor, and we had the uh, U.S. Drugs are as a guest speaker on ours. Uh, Heidi is situated under the Office of National Drug Control Policy, and so uh, the presidential appointed drugs are is obviously the uh, primary boss of it, and so he was a guest speaker on ours today, and once he uh, spoke to the group, we had about 115 on a call. Uh, we then had a number of uh, troopers, investigators, and uh, officers coast to coast talk about seizures and what they're seeing trend-wise, so that's fun. Uh, and it's a good way to kind of, you know, see the other side of the career as I, you know, work towards retirement years. Well, and here's the thing is, is with you, you've got the credibility, you know, you, you went out there and did it. So when you speak, it carries so much more authority because these guys know, Hey, this dude's been out there, you know, he damn near got himself shot on, on, on the side of the highway out there. And it just gives it so much more, uh, importance and impact to have somebody that's been there and done that than an, maybe have an academic come in and say, well, this is what you need to do, but they've never pulled a car over in their life. Yeah, the one-week wonders, they go out to one training course, they come back, and all of a sudden they're the experts. It's like, yeah, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And so, you know, uh, to echo what Steve says, you know, that's the folks that we communicate with. They are doing it real time. Um, you know, it's so funny. I get some mileage out of it, but, you know, haven't taught any courses since I started this job. But uh, what I've found on the tail backside of my career is a lot of these guys that I was teaching courses to, to the guys that are having success today, they had just been born when I started this. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it really kind of, <laughs> yeah, it kind of highlights, you know, the age, but it also highlights something that uh, has a lot of meaning. That is how long I've been doing this and being involved. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's really uh, fulfilling to be able to do this, uh, you know, just to be able to still communicate. And we, we highlight, to the leaders, you know, the HIDA directors and ONDCP representatives to include the drugs are what good work is being done out on highways by these young guys and, uh, you know, middle-aged guys, because uh, they're doing some awesome work. You know, the amount of fentanyl and cocaine that they're taking off on some of these uh, stops is just unbelievable. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's... We could, we could, I said, we should do, we should think about, we should just do a whole thing about, you know, the trends or what we've seen changing because obviously fentanyl um, has, is a game changer, you know, in so many different ways. Well, yes. First of all, this is us saluting you, Trooper. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. And I joined in that, brother. And my salute to both of you. You guys uh, have had storied careers also. Uh, All I did was save the world. Murph caught, Murph, Murph goes down to Columbia and Pablo turns himself in. That's his claim to fame. What else did you need? Yeah. What can I do for you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you still you got know. your campaign hat? You still put it on every now and then and look in the mirror and go, you one badass son of a bitch. I still have my campaign hat and I do occasionally put it on. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, you know. But yep. It's been a great career. It really has. And, you know, I still want to do this several more years. I'm 59 and, um, you know, Haida is a great place to be. Uh, you know, it's we kind of refer to it as Switzerland. We could work with everybody. And uh, that's the best part. I'm a big relationship builder and guy. I just believe in it and information sharing. So I did this for throughout my whole career. And so to be able to actually get paid to do it now, it's like, man, you know. It's like, it's, it's like you're paying me to do this? Well, hell yes. yeah. Yeah, that's- exactly. And so to be able to come to work and uh, get paid to do this, it's right up my alley. So, uh, but yeah, it's a lot of good work being done. And, uh, you know, a lot of credit goes to Steve. Uh, you know, again, he's he's top shelf in my books. So Thank uh, you, man. I appreciate Thank you. Thank you very much. I feel the yeah. same. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Well, Keep up the good work. We're going to come back to you for more stories. We want to see what's going on. You too, don't go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. I'll tell you, the most polite man, you know, and this is a guy, we don't really have people will drop a few, you know, F-bombs or, you know, or say a couple of things. He went at. He is the most polite gentleman I have met in a long time. He was like that when I first met him, and he still is. Uh, he even called me after we finished the interview. Um, was yesterday, right? We interviewed yeah. him yesterday. He yeah. called me last night, and believe it or not, this man is six foot four. He's one of those guys that he is so nice you never want to tick him off because I've seen him get upset with people, and it's not a pretty sight. And he called last night, and he said, "I was so nervous." <laughs> That's the first podcast interview he's ever done, believe it or not. I mean, with all his experience and, and the calls they do on a you know regular basis with his job. And um, and he said, do you think I did all right? I said, Tom, Tim, just wait, man. You're going to get all kinds of good reviews on this. People are going to love you. So, And there were stories that we didn't even get to tell. You know, so oh, it's 
we have so many guests. We have to go back and do two or three episodes because, like, like with Tim, th- I mean, just just the story. It was good. We got to the story about the guy taking away his gun because that's that, that's real life. I mean, yeah. and had it not been for his dog, mm-hmm. you know, bad shit would have happened to him out there on the side of the road. Yeah, and 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 here's one of the stories he didn't tell you either. Lobo, his dog, after you know when Tim retired, the dog retired with him, uh, became a house dog, and somebody stole him out of the yard. Oh my God! I don't know how you do that because he was also an attack dog, not just a drug dog. He was an attack dog as well. So, but either that or they killed him and took him. But you know, he lost Lobo. Damn! I know. Well, we're we're gonna find. We're, we're gonna I'll tell you what. Personal mission. We're gonna find out who the hell did that. Yeah, uh, I tell you what. I wouldn't want Mister Tim Cardwell coming after me. <laughs> he's gonna be nice, but he's gonna punch you on the top of the head and make you about three feet shorter. So. Ooh. He's just outstanding, just an outstanding police officer, outstanding individual. And what a, I mean, just, just a good, good guy. And you could tell too. So, but anyway, if you guys like that, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars for us. Remember, Stitcher's gone away. Google's gone away. So get on a platform that will be there forever. Uh, I don't know which one that'll be, but it's definitely not going to be those two. So hit those five stars. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more information about the show. We'll be updating it on a regular basis. we got a guest coming out. The episode following this, the gentleman has a book, so that's going to be listed there. Follow us on that thing called social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, our mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, who rules with an iron fist and a velvet glove. Get on over, just put in Game of Crimes fans on Facebook, answer a couple questions, and be admitted to the inner sanctum, and you too will enjoy all the benefits that come hitherto and therefore forthwith uh, you, with all of that stuff. <laughs> I was wondering how more of those big words you're going to throw in there. I don't, hey, I don't go, If you want a good laugh, go to that website, man. This, the, the fans in there are always putting funny stuff on there. Oh, yeah. And they're, they're dogging us, too. So uh, every now and then I get shit about Notre Dame, you know, and uh, so we're going to have to have a day. Of, there will be a day of reckoning, people. There will be a day of reckoning. Oh, <laughs> did you see West Virginia play Houston last night? No. Oh, they were ahead. Going three seconds left in the game. We're ahead by three or four points, I think. And they threw the Houston threw a Hail Mary and got it. We lost by three. Ah. And that was the the coach in Houston is the former West Virginia coach, Dana Holgerson. Uh, he knew where you were weak. Couldn't finish. Uh, yeah. I went to bed with tears in my eyes last night. <laughs> Come on, Mountaineers. Come on, ears. All right. Well, game days uh, will be Saturday. We'll see how the Irish do in uh, honor of Frederick Nicolosi. You know, go Tigers, whatever the hell. <laughs> Go Tigers. Uh, All right. Go, go. K. Joan Tigers. Anyway, guys, so uh, just have some fun. Also, hey, make sure you go visit us at Game of Crimes. No, well, that too, but visit us at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We got a lot of good stuff coming out, a lot of content. We put more content out on Patreon than we do in our free podcast. So join us there for You Can't Make This Shit Up 911. We do Q&A. We do the Narcometer Review. We've got case of the month, so we've got all sorts of good stuff for you to enjoy. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. So, you know, uh, Murph, I, you know, just has been another exciting episode, don't you think? That's absolutely. I, you know, we get a lot of comments from, especially from uh, law enforcement friends, like, you know, you guys, that podcast, you have the best guests on there. And it's because of our listeners. You know, the as long as you guys support us, we can continue to get these kind of guests. So, uh, we're honored to have every single one of them on there, and we've got a couple special ones coming up here soon. Uh, yes, we do. You and you're working thing. on it. We got, we got, we're, we're narrowing it down. So, guys, we got some special stuff. But guess what? Thank you, guys, once again. 
episode 120 for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, and North Carolina-friendly game of all, The Game of Crimes. Selling a little, or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap, or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. <laughs> 